Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. And before I tell you about this week's guest, I'm going to pay homage to another Quillette contributor, physician scientist Lisa Littman, who way back in 2019 did an interview with me in which she described her findings on what she dubbed rapid onset gender dysphoria, a condition whereby youth, typically young female teenagers, develop a sudden conviction that they are transgender, despite typically having exhibited no signs of gender dysphoria in the past. Dr. Littman theorized that in many cases, this might be influenced by external factors, such as friend groups and internet chat, a phenomenon more generally described as social contagion. At the time, Dr. Littman's research was seen as controversial, as it went against the grain of the increasingly orthodox view that all child testimonials about their gender should be taken at face value. But now comes fresh research that backs up Dr. Littman's discovery of this novel form of gender dysphoria. In a newly published peer-reviewed article appearing in the Archives of Sexual Behavior, co-author Northwestern University psychologist J. Michael Bailey describes a study of 1,655 possible cases of rapid-onset gender dysphoria, or ROGD, reported by parents enlisting at a website called parentsofrogdkids.com. Professor Bailey's co-author, somewhat unusually, appears under a pseudonym, Susanna Diaz, who is affiliated with this same website and who is also identified as a parent of a child whom she believes is afflicted by ROGD. In the interview that follows, I spoke to Professor Bailey about his findings, his previous research in the field, and the criticism he expects this new paper to attract. I noticed this paper was published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. I'm not any kind of clinical specialist in this area, though I have, as a layperson, noticed that sexologists seem to have a more holistic view of this problem. Would you generally say that sexologists are less beholden to some of the dogmas in the gender area, simply because maybe their discussions with patients, their clients, are just tend to be more wide-ranging? I do think that the people who know the most about gender dysphoria tend to be sexologists. Furthermore, the editor of Archives of Sexual Behavior is Ken Zucker, who is, in my opinion, the world's foremost authority on gender dysphoria, especially in children and adolescents. However, there's quite a woke contingent that dislike the ideas that we wrote about in the paper. There must be an interesting crossover between people who study gender and people who study sex and all sorts of fault lines that that lie there. You know, there's more than one kind of gender dysphoria. That is a fact that people are not sufficiently aware of. And the way that these different categories break down is to a large degree correlated with sexuality, especially in natal males. Well, you're speaking of it in veiled terms, but since you mentioned it, maybe we can discuss it. Mm. As I understand, you're referring to the classification where you have 
certain men who I believe the term that's been coined is autogynephilia, a paraphilia, as I think it was once called, and maybe still called, whereby they're attracted to the conceit of themselves as a, as a female. As I understand, it's controversial to talk about this because autogynephilia is a condition that somehow is still taboo. So autogynephilia occurs only in natal males. And, you know, the paper that we will be discussing today is mostly, but not entirely, about uh, natal females, three quarters natal females. But I suspect that the natal males in our study include many youth with autogynephilia. Autogynephilia is, it's a male's sexual arousal by the fantasy of being a woman or having a woman's body. It is very controversial, I know from experience, because in 2003, I published a book called The Man Who Would Be Queen. In the third section of this, I elaborated the theory, which was originally originated by Ray Blanchard, a sexologist in Toronto, of the two types of natal males who gender transition. I was attacked bitterly by trans activists. Why would they hate the idea? I think there are two reasons. One is public relations. They, I think, correctly intuit that the typical person on the street will be more likely to support their transgender identity if they think that it's it's a woman trapped in a man's body than if they believe that they, they have some sort of paraphilic desire to become a woman. The other reason why it's controversial is that autogynophilic persons, many of them have a deep need to see themselves as like a woman. And that theory, autogynophilia theory, says they're not really like women. They're males who have this uh, sexual thing. Well, the fact that autogynophilia only manifests in biological men, ironically, the paradox here is that to some extent it confirms their underlying male status. In a way, yeah. That's right. That's right. And I should also say that there's an increasing number of autogynophilic males who are embracing the theory. And even back in 2003, when people were really upset about my book, I got a lot of emails from people thanking me for helping them finally to understand themselves. Because autogynophilia is a, is a very strange phenomenon that is difficult for people, including autogynophilic persons, to understand. Here at Quillette, we've had at least one writer who, who, has, who has written candidly about being autogynophilic. It just strikes me as strange that so much of the progressive attitude towards sex is a welcome candor about our preferences, except in this one area. And that reluctance, it sounds like it's been weaponized consistently against you. Yes, and also against trans women who are open about their autogynephilia. Basically, they're supposed to shut up about that's, it. That's right. So the paper is titled Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria, Parent Reports on 1,655 Possible Cases. Before we talk about your results, I think it's interesting to note that you spend a lot of space in your paper acknowledging the imperfect nature of your data set. And you acknowledge the fact this is data that comes from an internet group that primarily attracts people who are skeptical of their children's presentation as trans because it comes on very suddenly. In a perfect world, a scientist's perfect world, would it be fair to say that the perfect data set would be 
not just millions of observations, but longitudinal observations from birth where you could take a neutral sample and see which children develop uh, mental health issues, which develop transgender identification at what time, and you track it over 15 or 20 years. I know that doesn't exist, but would that be the ultimate way this kind of scientific field would be investigated? Yes, in a perfect world that will never exist because it would be extremely expensive and invasive. Could you describe the way the data was collected? Yeah. um, Susanna is herself the parent of a child she believes has ROGD. And that's pretty much all I can say about her because she really is trying to stay anonymous. She created on the website Parents of ROGD Kids a survey that parents who were concerned about their own adolescent and young adult children primarily could complete. People would contact her and she would ensure that they were real and legit, apparently. And then she would allow them to take the survey. When she started the survey, Lisa Libman's paper wasn't published yet. Could you take us through a capsule summary of Lisa Littman, who, by the way, whom I've met here in Toronto, of her role in this? Because I don't think the term ROGD really existed, certainly not in the scientific literature until she came around. Yeah, that's right. So Lisa is the person who coined the phrase rapid onset gender dysphoria, ROGD. The first paper, which was published in publication date is 2019. She wasn't the only one who was noticing this stuff. There's several people on the internet who were concerned about an epidemic of mainly adolescent girls who did not have any evidence of being gender dysphoric children, but were kind of suddenly declaring that they were trans, often after one or more of their friends who made the same declaration, so it looked like social contagion. You use the term culture-bound syndrome in your paper. Yeah, culture-bound syndrome, because it's never really existed before, it has come into existence because of our culture. I should also say, this is what I believe. Nevertheless, as a scholar, I must be open-minded. You know, I I can change my mind if somebody um, comes up with better data contrary to these ideas. But I do think that there's a lot of evidence consistent with this idea. There's been a huge explosion, especially in that age group that is natal females and adolescents and into young adulthood who are seeking referrals for gender therapy and treatment because they insist that they are transgender. Many of them, perhaps not all of them, many of them with absolutely no evidence that they were ever even masculine children or that they had any problems with their gender growing up. And in the past, until I would say I was only aware of this maybe 10 years ago, I guess there is some indication that numbers were starting to increase longer ago than that, 15 to 20 years. But before that, the only kind of gender dysphoria that really occurred with any regularity in natal females was child onset, the very, very masculine, more masculine than a tomboy, not just a tomboy, but an extremely masculine girl who really insisted that she was a boy and hated being a girl and so on. This new cohort is not like that at all. 
Lisa Littman, who at the time, I think, was affiliated with Brown University. Now I think she's working independently. There was a memorable allusion in her paper to parallels with eating disorders and other socially mediated conditions that often come through peer groups. She mentioned one one situation in which there was a very popular teacher, or maybe it was a gym coach at a school, and within that peer group, several, maybe something like half a dozen girls suddenly announced that they were actually trans because this mentor figure was also trans or presented as trans. Is it the theory that boys are less susceptible to this kind of peer influence? Yeah, it does seem that boys are less susceptible to this. And there have been other epidemics of socially contagious phenomena, mainly involving females, including in the recent past. In the 1990s, for example, there were the epidemics of recovered memories of childhood sexual abuse, which I and many people believe were entirely false accusations against family members, and the related phenomenon then called multiple personality disorder which was not exactly faked, but nor was it real in the sense of being like what we think of multiple personality. And both of those phenomena were primarily seen in females. Uh, I think it's a fascinating question why females should be especially susceptible to that. Natal males, again, we had a fair number of natal males in our study. One quarter of the sample were natal males. There were some clear differences between the natal females and the natal males. For example, the natal females had a two-year earlier onset of their, let's say, gender dysphoria compared with the natal males. Also, the natal females were really eager to socially transition, change their pronouns, dress, and so on, where that was much less likely for the natal males, whereas the natal males were slightly more likely to want medical treatment than the natal females. Is it also the case, and I've seen this anecdotally, sometimes people who present with ROGD, they sometimes reconstruct their understanding of the past in a way that they've known ever since they were two years old that they were trans. I mean, memory is fallible for all of us, but is this a particular problem in this field? Yes, absolutely. By the way, listeners of this podcast will know we had a female book author on this podcast a couple of months ago from near Indianapolis. She described the frustration she had because in middle age, her male husband decided he was trans and he suddenly started remembering this completely fictional version of his own childhood, things that she knew were fictional because she had photographs and documents. So it was <laughs> it was kind of almost like one of these Soviet-style rewritings of history, except it's autobiographical. So, so there's that difficulty too for a researcher. It's unusually difficult maybe to trust the testimonials of people describing their own conditions. Well, it is. But let's keep in mind here, the people who are providing the data in our study parents of people who are 11 to 21, who is better at knowing their children than parents? Pushback that we will get and we have gotten includes the possibility that parents just didn't notice, but I find that implausible for the most part. Could happen in a few cases, but the child onset gender dysphoria in natal females is just so remarkably associated with extreme masculinity, nobody would fail to notice that. So I tend to believe the parents 
also uh, parents reporting on the the children's pre-existing emotional problems. On average, parents said that these youth had emotional problems, including formal diagnoses, and their problems, they said, pre-existed their coming out as gender dysphoric by about four years. That's a long time. I am not saying that this is the best that can be done. In fact, I'm continuing to study this. I'm launching a longitudinal study, not beginning at birth, but beginning whenever youth or parents contact us and enroll in the study. Collaborating with Lisa Lippman and Ken Zucker, we're excited about this study. It should be begun in the next couple of months anyway. As with everything, I guess you're always looking for more data. Yeah. One thing you hear about and you cover here in the study is there is a substantial overlap with children who present on the autism spectrum. And I've heard it said one of the characteristics of children who are on the autism spectrum is sometimes they develop very firm, sometimes unshakable beliefs about who they are and about their environment. And sometimes those beliefs are true and sometimes they're not. But those beliefs get embedded into their intellectual universe. Some have offered that as an explanation for why there's so much overlap between autistic youth and gender dysphoric youth. What can you tell me about that? What percentage of the people in the study were reported to have autism spectrum conditions? 6.5% of the natal females and 13.3% of the natal males were reported by their parents to have a formal diagnosis of autism. Both of those rates are elevated compared with the general population rates. However, you know, even the higher of those rates, 13.3, that's not that common in this sample. And 6.5 for natal females is even less. So my opinion about autism is that it's become increasingly diagnosed for a variety of reasons. And it is less and less clear what exactly it means. I, I think it means a combination of things, including socially awkward, rigidity in certain respects, and emotionality. But there are many emotional problems that can lead to those kinds of phenomena. So I'm not all that impressed with the idea that autism per se, is a major cause of rapid onset gender dysphoria. And remember, rapid onset gender dysphoria is supposed to apply more to natal females than to natal males. And for natal females, anxiety and depression were much more common. As we're having this conversation, a few days ago, there was something called Transgender Day of Visibility, I think. CBC, which is the government-funded national broadcaster here in Canada, in honor of this day, they profiled a kid who... This is a kid who has adopted the it, its pronouns, like the kind of pronouns you use for objects, yeah. and puts on this makeup like sort of a cat. It's clear that this kid has something going on, but it's not clear what that thing is. And it strikes me as a viewer of that CBC segment that whatever this kid has is maybe only loosely or not at all associated with gender dysphoria. Does that concern you? And did that complicate doing this kind of study where any kind of non-conforming behavior is just sort of lumped in with being trans? In the day after our study came out, I was contacted by two people, including uh, somebody I knew previously who said that their children had acquired Tourette syndrome on the internet. 
So adolescents are emotionally unstable, all of them. And some are more emotionally unstable than others. And I think that they're susceptible to various kinds of malign influences. And I am concerned about the kinds that are seem to be producing ROGD. You didn't dwell on it in your paper, but I thought it was really interesting. The vast majority of survey respondents, this is a group that corresponds with the people who contacted this website in the first place out of concern, were women. 84% were mothers. Fathers were just 13%. Do you understand why that would be the case? Why would it be maybe mothers who are more concerned or at least more proactive about acting on their concerns? Mothers are mothers and they're engaged in mothering. You know, I, I think that I'm not at all surprised that it was mostly mothers. You know, I, I think mothers tend to be the closest to their children and to know what's going on the most and to be the first to reach out in this kind of situation. So I'm less surprised than you are, though I I did uh, remember something. Susanna noticed this when we were almost done with the paper. We asked about the relationship between the gender dysphoric youth and each of their parents, both before and after the onset of gender dysphoria, or maybe it was social transition, I'm not sure. There was a larger drop-off in the quality of the relationship for mothers than for fathers. So that may be another thing going on. You talk about the ethnic background of the youth. Again, so this is a population primarily drawn from North Americans, although you you make it clear there's some Europeans and some Australians. Whites, or European background, about 80%. Asians, about 3%. Indigenous, about 1%. African-Americans, 0.6%. Is it fair to say this is basically a white phenomenon? I would say it's less about race than about class. And I think it's a largely a progressive middle to upper middle class phenomenon. And that disproportionately is a white subgroup. People on the other side would say, well, people who are progressive, people who are privileged, people who are educated, they have the means and inclination to take children seriously on this kind of thing. I guess this must be a maddening area to research because every proposition you put forward, it's possible to turn it on its head and say, well, no, no, that's actually proof for the opposite. Although interestingly, the people who come to these ROGD groups, the parents who are concerned, they're also incredibly progressive. I mean, you yeah. did research, or at least your your co-author, asked questions, basically proxy questions for social attitudes. And what were the results of that? We went back and coded a subset of statements that parents had made. And, you know, we were looking for statements that might have been thought of as progressive or as conservative. And there were far more progressive statements, including even, you know, if my child was actually trans, I would be the first to help them. (laughs) But I don't believe that that is my child. There were really few statements that could be considered conservative, like, you know, this is against our family's religious beliefs. There may have been one or two of those. Would it be possible that if you were from an extremely conservative or extremely religious background, maybe some of these parents would never have even gotten to the stage 
of reaching out to this group because they would have simply slapped down their children's views to begin with. And they wouldn't try and engage in good faith with explanations, perhaps, although that's speculation on my part. I, I think that's a very plausible theory. You have here a number of parents noted that the family had moved recently. I'm quoting here. Others mentioned the youth's romantic difficulties. But a few said that the youth had suffered severe physical or sexual abuse, and several mentioned that a friend or relative had committed suicide. Uh, you mentioned anxiety, self-injury, more common in natal females is a theme here. One of the theories that's put forward for this phenomenon is that when a person experiences trauma, sometimes they look for strategies to escape who they are, or at least create the conceit that there's somebody else as a distancing mechanism. You see this in accounts from survivors of domestic abuse. While she was enduring the abuse, she would pretend she was somebody else. And of course, one strategy for pretending that you're somebody else is to create a new identity. Is that something that's possible to study systematically? Trauma is something that many people in this domain talk about. I am quite skeptical that trauma is important. Really? Yeah. My, my skepticism long predates uh, my interest in ROGD. Trauma is one of the most overrated causes of anything there is. A Canadian psychiatrist who is very smart named Joel Paris has recently published a book called Myths of Trauma, in which he reviews these ideas. Most of us experience traumatic events in our lives. Most people get over traumatic events quite well. And the, the ones who don't, probably it's that they have some kind of emotional style that makes them less robust, more sensitive than other people. Also, some people create their own trauma based on the decisions that they make. That is something that has been studied even with respect to depression. So I, I don't find uh, the whole trauma thing to be very promising, but Susanna does not necessarily agree with me on that. We're just reporting what we found. And, you know, going forward in our research, we'll do some assessment of trauma, but I don't think that it's likely to be a big part of the story. So going back to Lisa Littman, there was this whole subplot drama that unfolded after she published her paper. Again, it was a peer-reviewed paper. It was published in an academic journal. The journal itself came under enormous pressure from activists to retract the paper on the grounds that it was damaging to transgender people to see their narratives questioned in this way. While the journal did not retract Lisa Littman's paper, it did require her to, to somewhat modify the language of her conclusions and clarification or correction was added of some kind. How much of that informed your approach here? Did it inform the way you did your study? What happened to Lisa Littman in that episode was shameful. Also, Brown University... They retracted their press release. Yes, yes. And they, I believe they did not renew certain relationships with Lisa you're a university professor. You're at Northwestern. I'm a I'm a tenured university professor, though that doesn't mean I don't worry about things. I do, but all I worried about for this paper was doing the best job I could do. Also, being very forthcoming about the limitations, and there are significant limitations, as there have been in every other 
study about gender dysphoria ever, but especially the past few years. So there are people writing on, quote, the other side. Not that I really consider that I'm on a side, but I'm sure I will be identified as on one now. By the way, by this point in the interview, people can guess that I maybe I'm sympathetic to your views. I'm- yeah, Quillette. <laughs> Quillette, by the way, is cited at least once or twice. I, I'm cited by name, full disclosure, in this paper. Yeah. At one point, <laughs> I told my friends, I, you know, I studied metallurgical engineering when I was in grad school. I, I never thought I'd be uh, cited in the archives of sexual behavior uh, unless one of my ex-girlfriends, you know, went public. But <laughs> I, I will <laughs> say this, though, that as you release this paper, you're releasing into a, a certain political environment where in the United States, you have highly conservative Republican-led state legislatures passing bans on therapies, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, surgeries for trans-identified children. And even many people like myself who are who are wary of this phenomenon and think maybe there's over-medicalization of kids are not necessarily comfortable with blanket bans because there are kids in severe cases who, who could benefit from this stuff. Does it complicate your efforts knowing that there are highly conservative politicians out there who are going way over to the other side? I think that scholars should be scholars and try to find out what is true. And when they think too much about the potential implications of their research, the risk is that they will hold back from saying things that are true, and then they have violated their pact with uh, the community of scholars. I have political attitudes and beliefs. I'm not sure that anybody would know what they are based on our conversations, but I can't worry about those while I'm doing research. Well, your critics will worry about it because, as you know, I mean, you're <laughs> you're not a babe in the woods here. You know that people on the other side, to demonize you, they could say, this plays into the hands of so-and-so. So I haven't been following closely these initiatives in different states, but these bans, as far as I know, they don't apply to all people. They apply to people below a certain age, probably the age of majority in the states. And gosh, I don't know that it's that horrible that somebody has to wait until they're 18 to get mastectomies and go on hormones. I don't know what's best, but the idea doesn't horrify me. Michael Bailey, thank you so much for sharing your expertise on the Quillette Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette Podcast. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. 